0: There's a reason that song has endured for decades. It packs quite a punch. There's a lot going into that phrase Jesus paid it all. It speaks of the infinite scope of the atonement, and it speaks, it forces you to contemplate just exactly what it is that Jesus has accomplished. And those are good things to contemplate. Words have power. If I can get my PowerPoint going. PowerPoint is supposedly has a lot of power, but there we are. Thank you. Something I've wanted to preach more, really, teach on for quite a while words have power. Whoops. Around the World War II time, uh, shortly after World War II, Richard Terrell Baker, professor of journalism at Columbia University, wrote this book. Darkness of the Sun, the story of Christianity and the Japanese Empire. It details the struggles that Japanese Christians and Japanese churches had just with whether or not to conform to the imperial cult and the worship of the emperor and the Shinto Buddhist uh, influence that was there at the time. He writes, another errand which the church ran for the government was the publication of a new special wartime hymnal. Any reference to Jesus or God as king of kings was a Shinto sacrilege, and the Christians gave up their usage of the term. Onward Christian soldiers was dropped in the revised hymnal, and while anti-fascist Norwegian Christians were singing in the field streets, cottages, and chapels, the stirring affirmations of faith in Luther's A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, Japanese Christians were prohibited its use. Why? Because words have power. Another example, in Nazi Germany, the song, Lo, how a rose air blooming, Es ist dein Ross in Sprungen aus einer Versusart. Forgive my lousy pronunciation, but you all know it, of course. Uh, you know the Protestant version. The original version was actually talking about Mary, which we've fortunately changed that. Uh, the rose is Jesus Christ. Uh, the na- Nazi German German Party, understanding the power of lyrics, but that that was part of their German heritage, that they couldn't simply toss the song out the window, changed the lyrics. Ust ist ein Lichter ständen in einer dunkelten Winternacht, so ist ein Deutschen in der Glaube neu entfacht. To us is a light arising in a dark winter night; thus is in German land the faith newly springing up. Of course, the faith for the Nazi Party was something radically different. It was namely the superiority of the Aryan race and the purging of the world from what they considered the Jewish question, irreconcilable to the true Christian faith and the Jewish Messiah. The point is this, governments throughout the world have understood the power of words set to music, and they have used that to their advantage. I want us to meditate upon the power of words set to music. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3.16. As you turn there, I just want to mention really quick Psalm 149.1 really does give us a paradigm for one key purpose of words, and that is to praise. Praise the Lord, all caps, the divine name Yahweh, the one who brings into being. Praise Yahweh, sing to Yahweh a new song. In other words, this should be an ongoing process of creativity. God created us to be creative, and God created us to use our creativity to praise him. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of songs. Thank you that, that something like Jesus paid it all can force us to meditate on those deep theological truths and ideally to not allow us to walk away unchanged as we meditate upon that. Teach us, Lord, about songs and lyrics today. And please challenge the student body to write and to think about what they're writing. And thank you for the privilege of being here and in Jesus' name, amen. The main command here in Colossians 3.16 is to dwell. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. A third person imperative. All the other verbs in this verse play a supporting role, showing how the word of Christ will dwell in you richly. In the process of the word of Christ dwelling in us richly with all wisdom, what is supposed to happen? Teaching and admonishing. Now, teaching is the impartation of new knowledge, the assisting with understanding the significance of current knowledge, and the demonstration of how to put that knowledge into practice. So for example, son, this is a baseball that's imparting new knowledge. Son, baseball is a fun sport that people all around the world play. That is the impartation of the significance of that knowledge. Son, here's how you throw a baseball. That is putting into practice. All of that is part of the teaching process. Teaching assumes that you are imparting important material that is a bit deeper than what a trained hamster could acquire on its own, In other words, when I get up in Greek syntax class, I do not say, this is a Bible. It is written in Greek. Greek is a different language. Teaching, by definition, must pass the DA test. Okay, I want you to remember that key principle. (laughs) Now admonishing, now the. Admonishing generally means warning. It's used this way in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 4:14, or confronting 2 Thessalonians 3:15, to declare to others whether a group or an individual that a particular path, if taken to its conclusion, will result in harm. This can be in a general sense. My friends, never forget, if you are careless in this area of your life, it will lead to worse circumstances, worse circumstances down the road, or it could be individual. Bubba Joe, can I talk to you about something? I've noticed this in your life. Can we just talk about that? Admonishing can be at equal level, but it's supposed to be ongoing. Now, what's fascinating is in this passage, the Apostle Paul declares that music is a way in which we teach and admonish one another. So look then, in psalms and hymns, dative there, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all three elements, I don't know that they're necessarily that different. I think Together, all those three phrases basically make up all the type of music that we would sing in church to each other in various settings uh, with a a spiritual sense. But at least collectively, that's what they represent. But Paul adds another layer to that. He says that while we are admonishing and teaching one another with songs, hymns, spiritual songs, while that is going on, it should also be at the same time going on in our heart. In other words, what's going on in our heart should naturally outflow into how we interact with each other. You cannot and you should not be teaching and admonishing each other unless it's actually going on in your heart at the same time, right? Don't say to your brother, hey, you've got a little speck in your eye when you've got the beam of wood in your own eye. Now, in light of that, having established all that from the text, I want to narrow in on the concept of teaching with song and how it can be done richly or poorly. I wanna start with five key ideas that will facilitate this discussion. Number one, singing spiritually should teach, praise, and admonish. We've just established that from the text Colossians 3.16. Teaching spiritually can teach, praise, or admonish. It does not necessarily have to do all three at once. Not every hymn we sing is going to warn of bad behavior. But it should be doing one of those three, and to various degrees, perhaps, all three. Secondly, it is essential that in everything the church teach sound doctrine and avoid wrong doctrine. 1 Timothy 10b talks about what is contrary to sound doctrine. Titus 1.9 talks about that he may be able by sound doctrine both to, uh, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. In other words, sound doctrine is essential. You have to have a topic that you're teaching. You have to have a subject matter that you're teaching. You don't just teach randomly. Well, what is that subject matter, sound doctrine? Thirdly, lyrics are not inspired by scripture. Okay, Keep this in mind. It is okay to critique and alter. So I think providentially, uh, Pastor Zempel even, even talked a little bit about that one line here, in Wesley's great hymn, which, by the way, is probably within the top 10. Uh, I think there'll be a top 10 list when we get to heaven, actually, of, of all the greatest hymns of all time. And I'm pretty sure Wesley will be within that. Wesley's hymn here will be within the top 10. It has enduring value. It speaks of the work of Christ. It is awesome. And so, and yet, That one line, humbled him, emptied himself of all but love, if you actually check our songbook, we have altered that one line, um, though it sometimes changes edition by edition, okay? We actually altered it to to, uh, humbled himself and came in love. Now, as Pastor Zempel mentioned, there is justification for the phrase as it originally stands, but it is possible that it could miscommunicate too. So it's one of those things, a pastor has to really make a decision, okay, which line are we gonna sing? But the point being, Wesley's hymn was not inspired scripture. It is not above critique. Here's another example. Frederick Lehman's The Love of God. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. That's a little bit open to misinterpretation. We understand what he's doing poetically, right? So what have we done? We've modified it in our, in our hymn book to reach as deep where sinners dwell. And once again, that'll sometimes vary depending on the addition of, of the hymn hymnal and so forth. But it is within the pastoral staff's right to do that. Because they are shepherds over the flock, then they want to avoid miscommunication. Fourthly, lyrics for congregational singing, because they are done for God, should reflect excellence. The creator of the universe is worthy of excellence in public worship. This is is the same in music as well as lyrics, of course. We do not want to put out junky music, but neither should we put out junky lyrics. There are standards of excellence. This is why Pastor Zempel is teaching creative writing. He assumes, and rightly so, that it is something that needs to be taught because not all short stories submitted to the New Yorker magazine are equal. I have had, by the way, I have had a short story rejected before when I was a young teenager. I couldn't help myself. I dashed off a short story, sent it into a magazine, rejected, but that's okay. It was not excellent material. Both acceptable lyrics and music are essential. I want you to focus on this. Good lyrics can be rendered offensive by bad music. We understand that. Not all CCM artists are producing junky lyrics. Some of them are actually producing quite deep lyrics that they then absolutely ruin (laughs) by making it sound like a rock song, which sort of defeats the whole purpose of the song in the first place. However, the flip side is also true. Good music can be rendered absurd by bad lyrics. And don't let let good music lull you into a, and and by good music I mean here by the standards of BCM, even high classical style, okay? Don't don't let good music make you forget what the lyrics are about. I have heard some absolutely gorgeous, by our standards here, okay? Some absolutely gorgeous variations of Ave Maria. (laughs) Was is Ave Maria really something you can sing along to? Now, you know, there might be reasons to listen to it for research purposes or whatnot, but it's not really the kind of song a Christian should be singing, right? And yet it's beautiful. In light of that, though, I want to look at some positive examples of music. This is more of really of a, of a teaching session. I have a lot of material to go through here. I want to look at some positive examples of music and how they teach and just what goes into it so that you can learn, so that we can learn better how to create good lyrics. And then we'll actually look at some principles of that. If we have time, we'll look at a couple bad examples as well, um, which will be a lot of fun, believe me. Positive example number one, Immortal, invisible, God only wise. A couple of years ago, Pastor Van just asked me sort of on, on the spot to do something for his choir. He wanted me to go, into a, go in and do a full analysis of this song, um, its theology, its scripture, and all that. We already knew the song was good, but he wanted me to show why it was good. And I, I found some really cool stuff. I mean, the song is deep. It's number 34 in the hymnal. I want you to turn to it, please. Um, you'll be getting out your songbook as well. This is a rare breed of a sermon where you, will be, where you will be spending just as much time in the hymnal and songbook as you are in Scripture. So bear with me. Number 34 in the hymnal. Keep in mind, be asking yourself, what does this song teach? I want to stress that point. What does this song teach? Okay, Immortal, Invisible, God, Only Wise, number 34 in your hymnal. Look at, just look at that first verse. Let me read to you some of the biblical background of just that first verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O the Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain. The Psalms are so rich in poetic language that nonetheless have theological depth to it. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, 1 Timothy 1.17, be honor and glory forever and ever. God only wise, the only wise God. What's that say? It speaks to the uniqueness of the one true God. It speaks to the infinite capacity for intellect of the one true God. 1 Timothy 6, 14 through 16. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his time he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul can't help himself here. He has to keep going. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And then the Apostle Paul can finally take a breath. Wow. This is what immortal, invisible, God only wise. This is what that song is, is trying to do, to convey the scriptural truths of the unique nature of the Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And it does that quite effectively. It also develops within the song, you see the theme of light developed in multiple verses. I think it's verses one, two, and four. So there's an ongoing theme there, which is artistic consistency. Okay, there's, there's that's a good thing to do. Okay, there's, uh, there's other things the song does just throughout, very picturesque language. It's not a boring song. If you look at just the imagery that it produces, it's not a boring song, but it's God-centered. It's speaking about God. Now, this next one, hopefully Pastor Zempel doesn't know this is coming, but this is actually one of my favorite songs from the past few years on bended knee that we'll, we'll examine. I'm doing this without his permission, although... In my defense, Pastor Wayne Van Gelderen did know that I was going to do this, as did Mr. Daniel Van Gelderen. They didn't object, so I don't think I needed his permission anyway. (laughs) However, once he sees how I creatively rewrite one of his verses, he may never forgive me. So we'll see. On Bend and Knee, turn to number 136 in your songbook. I choose this because, number one, it's the best song on prayer I've ever heard in my humble but correct opinion. And I'm, and, I'm new, and I'm not doing this just to butter up Pastor Zemple because he's my boss. Because once again, once he sees what I do, what I actually do with one of his beloved verses, he's not going to forgive me. But I'm, I'm not doing this to butter him up. I, I do this because I want you to see something that was produced here. Okay? And, and there's other examples. I mean, the, uh, the, you know, I Am the Vine, that, that song. I mean, there's a lot of good examples that we could really dig into. But this one's really my favorite, which is why we're looking at it. There are very few songs on prayer on there. First of all, I want you to notice, this song is Christ-centered, okay? It's not about me and my time with God, and it's all about me and how happy prayer makes me, and no, 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 it's about Christ. Look how it starts. The very first word, Lord. If the very first word of a song is God, then that's actually a good sign, as opposed to me, right? Now, that doesn't mean it disqualifies a song if you start with I, I understand. But it's a good sign if it starts with Lord. Line two acknowledges that we bring nothing to the table. God doesn't need us, but he does want a relationship with us, right? Lord, I need thee every moment. What have I to offer thee? Nothing but a wounded spirit. The chorus is about a desire to build a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me go on with thee. Not a casual acquaintance, but a deep life-drawing relationship. What is going on in this song is not something casual that could describe, for example, just a warm friendship or a fiance. Look at the the openings of verses two through four. It continues to be Christ-centered. By thine all-sufficient merit, at the mighty name of Jesus, by the name that thou hast given. This song teaches us that a good prayer life is fixed on Jesus. In other words, it's teaching us something important. Secondly, it draws from the language of scripture. This is, the the phrase we use here is intertextuality. There are multiple layers beneath the surface is the language of scripture. In other words, this song, as it now stands, could not exist if scripture did not exist, if key passages of scripture did not exist, because it is drawn heavily from that. In fact, and and it's drawn from the language of culture, uh, of scripture, not pop culture, obviously, okay, in fact, for some of these allusions I'm going to mention, Pastor Zempel himself may not have been aware of it. They may have just come out naturally. Why? Because he knows Scripture. We call our Richard, New Testament scholar Richard Hayes called these echoes of Scripture, where sometimes the apostles, they, they quite possibly just used the language of Scripture without even necessarily being conscious of it at the time because they couldn't help themselves. Echoes of Scripture. The very first line, of course, echoes many of the Psalms where David declares his need of God based on his own unworthiness, yet it's God's graciousness. Psalms 71 and 5 Make haste, O God, to deliver me, make haste to help me, but I am poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God, thou art my help and my deliverer, O Lord, make no tarrying. This is just a consistent theme all throughout the Psalms. Other Psalms, other examples could be given. The need for God to rescue. The same verse later on, wounded spirit, broken heart, obviously Luke 4.18. And we've heard Dr. Jim preach very effectively on this, Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted. In fact, once I sat down and actually studied Pastor Zempel's song, I, I noticed that this actually becomes a repeated theme in the song. Verse two, thou hast touched my broken spirit. Verse four, let the broken be made whole. In other words, it's a key phrase that in a sense unifies the song into one theme. I'm broken, come heal me. Is that something worth declaring to Jesus? Absolutely. Third, uh, second verse, raised me to the throne. This naturally makes me think of Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, where in light of the great high priest, the the, uh, author of Hebrews has just been talking about the great high priest, Jesus Christ. In light of that, he says, let us boldly come unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus raises us to the throne where he is sitting at and is able to help us. First two lines of verse three, at the mighty name of Jesus, every foe must bow the knee. This is obviously direct, uh, direct reference to Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it's deeper than that because Philippians is in turn quoting from Isaiah 45, 23. In other words, we have a we have the song quoting Philippians, which is quoting Isaiah. So that's like three layers of intertextuality, which, wow, poof, my head just exploded. That's awesome. Okay. That's deep. Okay. Even more so, and this is something that perhaps Pastor Zemple might not have realized, even more so, I like it when the author says every foe here, because when the Apostle Paul is speaking in Philippians, every, everything in heaven, uh, let's see, on earth, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. What many don't know is that phrase, under the earth, is one word in Greek, super rare word, katakthonion. Katakthonion does not mean just, you know, under the earth, like the moles and the, and the mushrooms and the, you know, the little froggies. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. Katakthonion is a very technical word to refer to the underworld in Greco-Roman literature. So we see, for example, Strabo talking about a certain difficult passageway in the sea and how in order to get through there safely, you have to offer sacrifices to propitiate the denizens of the katakthonion. Dimeon katakthonion. In other words, the Apostle Paul, who certainly did not have to use that word, but the Holy Spirit inspired him to, the Apostle Paul is making a point here that at the name of Jesus, the very dark forces that hold the world in captivity of fear, those very dark forces, those sinister spirits that reside in the underworld, they are going to be brought kicking and screaming before Jesus Christ. Those foes must bow the knee, in other words. That adds certainly a new dimension to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there is theological depth. And what do I mean by theological depth? Well, It surpasses the duh test. It passes the duh test. It makes me stop and think, which is what a good song should do. And of course, I understand, when you've sung a song 100 times in chapel, it's hard to stop and think about it. But a good song with theological richness will force you to stop and think. If I just say, Jesus is good, well, duh. Okay, it didn't really pass the duh test. Now, is what I said wrong? Jesus is good, is that wrong? No, it's okay, right? And it may even be a word of comfort, but it's not really speaking about the uniqueness of Jesus. I mean, there are plenty, there are, there are plenty of meditation experts out there, yoga, fitness, whatever, meditation gurus that would gladly say Jesus is good. He's just another meditation transcendental spirit, whatever, right? So big deal. I want something more. Teach me something more. Teach me something about Jesus I have not considered before an angle on his salvific work that I need to grasp more deeply. Okay, Obviously, any line alluding to Scripture is naturally deep. My favorite line of the song, I almost got chills first time I heard this, by thine all-sufficient merit thou hast raised me to the throne. I'm like, whoa, that's deep. Okay, Why? Because it forces you to stop and think. Jesus's merit is how awesome? It's all-sufficient. What does it do? It raises me to the throne. It, it makes you think. Another thing, fourthly, there's some at least artistic, some, at least some artistic sophistication in the choice of the words, OK? And this is where I'm least qualified to judge, but I want to demonstrate what I mean. So here is Ah, Wow. <laughs> uh, ignore that. That was supposed to be there we are. That's supposed to be a surprise later. <laughs> OK. Here we are. I have taken the liberty of rewriting one of Pastor Zempel's verses, okay? So, Lord, I need thee every moment. What if i to offer thee nothing but a wounded spirit, broken heart, and bended knee? In the stillness of this hour, Lord, I would go on with thee ever onward, uh, the power as I wait on bended knee. I've dumbed it down. I'm gonna make it more hip. Behold, hey, Jesus, I really, really need you, though I ain't got, though I got nothing, 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 except I've got hurts aplenty, and my heart's been broken, broken, broken. Notice the repetition there. That's what gets you on the top 10 chart, by the way. When the day gets oh so quiet but I see the end zone near, then help me break the devil's tackle as I pray my time of prayer. I like it. I like it. What do you think? Are the headlines going to read something about a professor disappeared tomorrow, perhaps? Now, be honest. My feelings won't be hurt. Which one has more artistic excellence, this or this? Right, the first one. Okay. But mine would probably more likely be played on the radio. (laughs) But I've, you know, I've somehow, and honestly, I'm not sure how the football analogy got in. I think a little, I think there was an angel who was a Green Bay Packers fan that when I turned my back, the angel started typing, and I just didn't realize it, so. It's interesting, Charles Wesley actually wrote an open letter where he basically said, you guys out there, leave my lyrics alone. <laughs> I don't mind you singing my songs, I don't mind you, you know, copying my songs, but just leave my lyrics alone, please. The point being, there is some artistic excellence there. It is not a s- search for a cheap rhyme, in other words. Now, in light of all that, judging the quality of lyrics, how should we judge the quality of lyrics? How, how do we tell if a song is doing a good or bad job teaching, four points here I'm offering. First of all, adherence to and promotion of sound doctrine. This includes clarity and precision. If there is a possibility that these lyrics are teaching the wrong doctrine, even if that's not what is meant, then we need to rethink the lyrics. We saw how even at FBC we'll occasionally alter lyrics for theological purposes, for, for good reasons. This doesn't mean that the original lyrics were bad. It just means that they're not as precise as they could have been. I believe, and I want to make this statement, because I believe in giving songwriters the benefit of the doubt. Okay? All things being equal, I believe in giving them the benefit of the doubt, okay? whether they're of our breed or another stripe or whatever. Okay? But That does not mean we should not judge the lyrics for what we communicate. Because it is quite possible, in fact, probably frequently happens, that a songwriter means to communicate one thing. He means well, but what comes out is something else altogether. Have you ever done this? And so if we are singing that something that comes out that wasn't intended to, but nonetheless conveys the wrong thing, that's a problem. Scripture, I am convinced, scripture is the only piece of literature in the history of the world where what is communicated to, the, to a proper audience, where what is communicated matches exactly what the author intended. That's not the case with all other forms of literature, including songs, which means we have to be careful. This is not something we should take for granted. One evangelical reacting against the apostasy of Hillsong's Marty Sampson railed against the stupidity of having people write theological lyrics when they don't know a lick about theology. He said, have you ever considered the disrespect of singing songs to God that are untrue of his character? By the way, wasn't this precisely why God rebuked Job's friends? Because they were saying things untrue about him. But they meant well. You see, good intentions is not good enough. When you're writing a song, your good intentions about what you wanna communicate is not good enough. You must strive to ensure that what you are actually communicating as it will be heard by others matches what you intended to say and that you are teaching properly. Intertextuality, of course, it refers to scripture. Artistic excellence, you are not searching for a cheap rhyme. And by the way, the Psalms here are fantastic. If you actually study what Psalm 19 does in Hebrew, okay, wow, you'll be blown away. And by the way, you cannot express in English everything that the Psalms do. This is why no single English translation can ever be perfect, because it cannot. By very definition, it cannot adequately express everything of the artistry of scripture. Now, are there better translations than others? Absolutely, okay? The King James being at the top of the heap there, the Tom Brady of Bible translations, if you will. But we must never forget, no English translation, no matter how good, can adequately express everything the inspired author had in the original. Which is why you should all take Hebrew. By the way, it's coming around again next fall, so just FYI. The opposite of artistic excellence is cheap mass production, lyrics that are meant to be stuck in your brain because they resonate with the simplest, less sophisticated part of your psyche. This is why, until you die, there's nothing that you can do about this. You will always remember the lyrics to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Furthermore, those lyrics will bubble up out of your subconscious at the absolute worst time, like when you're about to propose to somebody. Just be aware of that. Here's a couple examples. <laughs> I, was driving, I was driving in Wisconsin once. I was, I was uh, going a little bit of a long way, and I was looking for a baseball game on the radio, and I found it. But in the process of my looking for ba- a baseball game, I heard these lyrics on your basic boilerplate CCM station. Okay? He set me free for liberty. OK. <laughs> set me free liberty. This is what's called search- searching for a cheap rhyme. Okay, because Set Me Free is basically the same thing as Liberty, so you're just basically repeating it just for the sake of getting a rhyme, though. Is it bad? with the lyrics in of themselves necessarily bad? No, they're just kind of silly. Recently on VCBY, I caught the tale of an end of a song that, and certainly VCBY has way higher standards than the average boilerplate CCM station. Lord, I love you, I really do. Okay, I've heard worse. I've heard worse, but I really do is a bit cheesy. And by cheesy here, I mean a somewhat simplistic attempt to use casual language to express deep emotion, taking the easy way out. Don't take the easy way out with lyrics. God is worthy of more. Anybody can come up with some lyrics, but it takes hard work to come up with excellent lyrics. This brings up a related fourth point, depth of content. A. W. Tozer writes: This is unfortunately a fe- there is unfortunately a feeling in some quarters today that there is something innately wrong about learning, and that this has spirit, and that that to be spiritual one must also be stupid. I call this the cult of ignorance. It equates learning with unbelief and spirituality with ignorance, and according to it, never the twain shall meet. This is reflected in a wretchedly inferior religious literature, a slap happy type of religious meeting, and a grade of Christian song so low as to be positively embarrassing. Ouch. Keep in mind, he wrote this before CCM existed. So in light of that, what does it mean to have theological depth, depth of content? Couple things. Oops, there we are. It means effort has been put into composition, duh. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus adds something to the Shema. The Shema says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and, heart and uh, soul and strength. Jesus adds a word, mind. We're supposed to use our minds when we love God. This presumes that it's possible to fail to honor God either by not using our mind or by using it in a flawed manner. Cultivate your mind. It must pass the duh test. Once again, I'm stressing that. It must teach. Don't tell me something I already know that's become a Christian cliche. Teach me something deeper. Thirdly, it must point to the uniqueness of the subject matter. It must point to the uniqueness of the subject matter. Jesus Christ cannot be replaced by Buddha, Aaron Rodgers, your fiance, a political party, a nation, coffee, or chocolate. His redemptive work cannot be replaced by the emotional rush you, rush you get when you slam dunk a basketball. Okay. There's something more special going on. Let me show you an example of how we need to be unique with our lyrics. I wrote a song. I actually did. I wrote a song. It took me all of maybe five minutes or so. Okay. So here's, here's my song. There we are. OK, this, I'm, I'm looking to get a contract for this, all right? So Jesus makes me happy even when I'm sad. Jesus is so good even when I'm bad. When I'm feeling down, when the sky has turned to brown, all I got to do is turn to Jesus, OK? <laughs> Can, can't you just picture that being? Never mind. We shouldn't go there. Um, so what's wrong with this? Is anything that I'm stating here technically inaccurate? Is any of it heretical? No. Okay, I mean, it's, and it's emotional. There's nothing wrong with it being emotional and with engaging the emotions. Here's the problem it's not unique enough. Because I can replace Jesus with coffee. Coffee makes me happy, even when I'm sad. Coffee is so good, even when I'm bad. When I'm feeling down, when the sky has turned to brown, all i got to do is turn to coffee. And that's also true. My friends, <laughs> if. Now both Pastor Swanson and Pastor Zempel are going to conspire against me. (laughs) Do you understand my point? If the name Jesus can be replaced by something else and the song actually makes sense, may I suggest we can perhaps do a little bit better? (laughs) Okay, let's celebrate the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Now then, what do bad lyrics do? Just, I'm gonna go briefly through this because I'm running out of time. A couple really, one really, really bad one. This is the one that's just flat out heretical, okay? This, is, this was sung, it's recent, it's progressive, it's sung by a choir, I, you can actually, I don't necessarily recommend it. When I was listening to this, it actually, I started to feel physically ill in the stomach, okay? But this is womb of all creation flowing, sung by a choir in a North Carolina Baptist church womb of all creation, flowing with your blessings everywhere, bring to birth in us deep caring that your fullness all may share. Fill us with your gentle power that new ventures we may dare. Holy darkness deep within us, nurture our creative seeds, bring our dreams to glorious flower as your peace our spirits feed. In your center we find wholeness, your grace fills all our needs. I would call this pantheistic hyperfeminism on steroids (laughs) infused with a sinister dark power. You may quote me on this. Now let's get a little bit closer to home. Here's one that was, uh, whoops. (laughs) Speaking of holy darkness, indeed. Um, (laughs) There we are. This is very sensitive. I need like special training on this to, (laughs) how to use this. Or else the PowerPoint just couldn't take the lyrics anymore. That's a possibility as well, so, okay. uh, Yeah, just play from start and I'll get there eventually. That's fine. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Okay, coffee song. Excellent, there we are. (laughs) If heaven's a dream, dream on. Every dream I've ever dreamed is crumbled, and every everything I've ever loved is gone. The only real thing that happened to me is Jesus. If he is a dream, friends, let me dream on. Repeat chorus. The author is well-meaning, okay? Obviously, perhaps the author has suffered some griefs, some wounds, and Jesus is helping her get over those. Fine. A couple things. First of all, the apostle Paul would recoil in horror. His entire faith is built on the literal and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is not content to let it be a dream, because if that's the case, he is of all men most miserable. In other words, if Jesus is just a dream, we are pathetic, okay? Secondly, there is nothing in this song which could not potentially be said by somebody else in another religion, or even an ideological atheism, Okay. okay? If Marxism is a dream, then let me dream on. You see, that's a problem. In fact, thirdly, it reminds me of Karl Marx's statement about religion being the opiate of the masses. If if this is all that religion is about, no thank you. I have better things to do. Once again, the person meant well. And so far as I know, I haven't really studied out this author. But so far as I know, she may have even written other better songs, much superior songs. In fact, it's hard to get worse than this. So surely the others were superior, okay? (laughs) But once again, it's not good enough because it's not teaching. That's the point. It's not teaching. Thirdly. I heard this when I was about 14 years old, and we were traveling around, and we stopped at an independent Baptist church, and I think it was near Mother's Day. A couple, couple little old ladies, bless their hearts, they got up and sung this with tears in their eyes. When the people, uh, he was still her little child. This is, I'll give you one of the later verses. It's the only verse with anything of redeeming quality in it, in my opinion. When the people turned against him, he was still her little child. When they shouted, crucify him, he was still her little child. When they nailed him to a wooden cross, then we were reconciled. When she held his broken body, he was still her little child. Now. Is it no doubt true that Mary had some motherly affection for Jesus Christ? Okay, obviously, she's a mother. She couldn't help it, right? And yet, there are a number of key problems about this. First, we do not go to church to sing about motherly affection. When we teach with lyrics, we are to be teaching about God, not motherly affection, except insofar as Scripture itself teaches us about motherly affection. Secondly, the theological significance of Jesus' work here is reduced to one somewhat vague line, then we were reconciled, okay, which is good in so far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. This takes a backseat to the ongoing refrain, he was still her little child. That's a problem. Jesus' work must never take a backseat to human sentiment. Thirdly, if the thought, he's still my little child, was a foremost thought in Mary's mind, this is an indictment of her spirituality, not praise of it if that's the primary thing that she's thinking, watching Jesus on the cross, well, shame on Mary. She should have known better. I mean, we're watching the suffering servant Suffering servant here. She knows Luke 1 and 2. She had stuff to keep in her heart and ponder. And the stuff that she was keeping in her heart and pondering, according to the Gospel of Luke, is not he is still my little child. It's he's going on for something infinitely greater than this. So... When Jesus is nailed to the wooden cross, he is nailed there as the savior of all mankind. He is nailed there as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is nailed there as the cosmic irony of the creator, the architect of the universe being put to death on wood. He is not being nailed there as anybody's little child. That phrase is irrelevant to the apostolic witness. Obviously, there is, some, there is room for some meditation on Mary's motherly affection, but very little room, and absolutely not in the shadow of the cross. Now, in light of all that, I have three challenges for you. First of all, just by way of introduction, words have power. We've, we've been making that point. It was about eight years ago, and I was really struggling with something in my life. And I, I had bought, an, bought a CD by a group that came through our church, good, good independent Baptist group, and I, I bought that CD. I, I placed it in my, in my computer and started playing it. And, and the very first song, ra- very rarely has this ever happened to me, the very first song, the music was just serving, serving the purpose. The music was not soulish, as Dr. Jim would say, and, and it certainly did not have a heavy beat or anything like that to manipulate the emotions. It was pure words. The words drove me to my knees. Literally, I went to my knees and I cried. And I cried and I talked with God. It was the words. Are there perhaps some of you out there that can write words like that? Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone and let God help you write some words that will pierce to the heart? Do you want to make a difference in Christianity? You you don't have to preach to do that. Three challenges. Write songs. We need more songwriters, okay? Pastor Zempel shouldn't be the only person writing songs. He's doing a great job, but he shouldn't be the only person writing songs. We need more songwriters. We want you guys writing songs. Now, not every song you write is going to be up to the level of congregational singing. You know, I mean, you'll write some fun stuff, but it's just not there. Okay, you'll, you'll learn that there's a difference between good and really good. And the difference between good and really good is huge, okay. It's the difference between being able to throw a 90 mile per hour fastball in college and being able to go on to the major leagues. Okay? So that's okay, write songs and God will appreciate it, even if he's the only one that hears it, okay. Write songs because it's a good thing to do, because it helps you express your praise. This is why Psalm 149:1 one says write a new song or sing a new song. That's really to all of us, collectively. So even if it's only in the quiet of your own personal room, if, even if it never sees the light of day, write a song. When you, as a five-year-old, draw you know a little picture with crayon and give it to your mom, what does she do? Does she send it off to the Milwaukee Art Museum? No, it's not that good, sorry, it's not that good. But she does put it on the refrigerator, right? Because she loves it and she loves you. So even if your songwriting isn't necessarily up to that level as others. Let me just challenge you, still write some songs as an act of worship and in the process to perhaps teach yourself so that you can teach others better. If you're forcing yourself to think theologically and think about scripture, that's a good thing. Write songs, think theologically and intertextuality when, intertextually when you write. Think about the deep theological truths, the deep doctrines of God and his son Jesus Christ as the spirit guides you. Think about scripture. There are a lot of untapped gems in scripture. Some of the most unlikely places for crying out loud, Lamentations. Great is thy faithfulness. That one phrase from Lamentations, it's like the only bright spot in the entire book of the Bible there. So think deeply when you write. Now a caution here, this does not give you the right to sit in judgment upon others, okay, because the worst case scenario here of this sermon is that one of you freshmen, bless your hearts, you go home over spring break, you know, Wednesday, and. and uh, some you know, 75-year-old person that has been in your church longer than you've been alive and has won more souls to the Lord than you ever will, and they want to get up and they want to sing, If Heaven is a Dream, Let Me Dream On. And my nightmare is that you will go up to them after that, someone you, that you don't really have a right to rebuke at this point, and you'll say, well, we learned in chapel at BCM that that's a stupid song. And then guess who gets in trouble? I get in trouble, right? So <laughs> please do not do this. You do not have the right to critique anybody on their choice of songs at this point. Wait until you've gained more maturity and theological understanding and have been in a position of leadership for a while and then perhaps you can start leading your congregation down a certain path or so so forth. And even then, you have to be careful, okay? So please understand, this is not giving you the right to sit in judgment on anybody. You are not at that point. I am not really at that point either. But I am saying, think theologically. And then finally, this challenge comes from Mr. Van. Write about Jesus. But ask yourself, how well do you know the person you are writing about? If you go through our our hymnal, you will see that not every single hymn was written by a fundamental independent Baptist. In In fact, probably the majority were not. And yet, the enduring hymns have a quality of genuineness about them because the people that wrote them knew their subject matter. So how well do you know the subject matter? How well are you acquainted with the topic of your song? Don't bother writing a song until you've learned to live that song that's in your heart. To write about Jesus without having a personal relationship with him would be my, like me trying to write a song about golf. You would, find, you would read better lyrics on the side of a box of Fruit Loops, okay? It's just not going to happen. So write about Jesus, but get to know the one you're writing about in all his glorious dimensions. Let's pray.